J.Crew, we haven't been with you for two weeks, so we haven't been together on this podcast since the terrible shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. We wanted to just mention the names of the dead. Catherine Goldstein, Irina McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, Jacqueline Sundheim, Stephen Strauss, and Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza. May their memories be for a blessing. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts in person, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet, what are you? Tablet. Whatever I damn please tablet, is what I am. Tablet Associate Fact Checker Liel Leibowitz. Tablet Restaurant Reviewer. <laughs> Today on the show, we're bringing you a conversation with radio journalist Mike Pesca, host of the podcast The Gist, the longest running daily news podcast in history. <laughs> Props to him for promoting his podcast as the longest running daily news podcast in podcast history since podcasts aren't that old. But we're buying it. We're buying what he's selling. We also check in with Argentinian journalist Javier Sinai, who tells us about his book, The Murders of Moises Vie, The Rise and Fall of the Jerusalem of South America. But first, Stephanie Budnick. Haven't laid eyes on you in two weeks because we were off last week to celebrate our country's independence. What's up? Guys, I'm going on vacation. I'm super excited. It's a destination first birthday for Edith Cohen. Yes, Edith is turning one and I decided to take the week off. We're going to Colorado with a lot of family and it's going to be really, really fun. And don't worry, like next week's episode will be normal. We're recording it before I go. But you won't um, be here. But I'm, I'm going away. I'm getting a little break from you so, guys. It happens to be Edith's birthday next week. So I thought that would be a fun week to take off. Really like set the bar really, really high for that first birthday. I'm going to say something I don't usually say because, you know, every parent, parents that they're in their own, along their own parenting journey, but that's a serious first mom, first child move is the destination first birthday. Oh, I mean, it's more like this show. is a good week. It worked out for everyone. But I, I wanted to, <laughs> but I wanted to assure you guys that I'm, I'm only going for one week this time. I'm not going for 12 weeks. Okay. Um, so like, I, I will it. be back. <laughs> but this is a serious first, first yeah. kid, I first birthday move. I bar so high that everything will ultimately be a disappointment. Oh, after. listen. That's, Luckily, she won't remember That's this. exactly what's going to happen. Lily's first birthday. It's like, and I will buy $700 worth of cold cuts and vegetables arranged in the yeah, sorted yeah. shapes. By the time her sixth birthday, I so saw you, you gone in the movies with two friends. Is it your birthday? What? Yeah. Whose there's, birthday is there's it? 40 it's bucks. Birthday. Like, just buy candy or <laughs> but something, I also feel I guess. like this one's a lot about me also. Uh -huh. Like, this is my first anniversary. I, I don't know. Yeah. So there'll be a lot it's of like, processing. It's like, you know how, like, the 50th doing, anniversary yeah. is like the diamond anniversary? The first birthday the is Colorado, the mom birthday. The mom birthday. <laughs> it's the special, Yeah, I mean, we're special. having a little, a little party. There will, there's a balloon order. There's a cake order. Everything's, yeah, we're not we're not messing around Next here. week, Stephanie Button, it goes to Mountain Time Zone. So listen. Speaking of Colorado, I just had the opportunity of being there. I dropped Lily off. As you may know, Lily, uh, who's a horse girl, really wanted horse camp and I wanted Jew camp. And so Lisa and I scoured the web. She's a lot of things. She's a sports girl. She's a horse girl. She's, she's a classic rock she's, girl. She's a Mets she's girl. She's everything. She has every she's obsession. The whole, the whole enchilada. Yeah, well, she inherited all of our... And it was probably because <laughs> yeah. she had a really good first birthday that she was, you know, primed she to be all of these amazing things. She was all. Right. And so we found Jew Horse Camp, Jorse Camp, if you will, in Colorado, where, of course, there's a camp for Jews with horses. So I fly her out to drop her off and we drive out of Denver and then we stop seeing buildings. And then and then 20 minutes later, we stop seeing cars. And then 20 minutes later, we see like nothing but like vast expanses and horses and greener. It's just completely gorgeous. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, imagine this like kind of Western Larry McMurray <laughs> landscape. All of a sudden, we hear 
Tel Aviv, ya habibi, Tel Aviv. Like Omer Adam Israeli, like bad Israeli pop, like blasting out as loud as we can. And that's how you know you're getting and, to Jewish horse camp. And <laughs> seven like burly Yarons standing there in like their cut off jean shorts, like, eh, park the car to the left and you can drop the trunk. Wait, wait, but are they on horseback? They I, are on horseback, oh. which led me to this amazing. So I'm looking at these like young kind of strapping Israeli lads on horseback in this vast, un, kind of inhabited landscape, and then and then the thought occurred to me. Okay, mm-hmm. look, some years ago we started Jewish state number one, is Israel one, right? <laughs> it's not going well. <laughs> Let's be honest here. We can't even have a government. We've we've been doing like five elections over the course of like a year and a half. I think it's time for Israel too. And I think it has to be in Colorado. Can you imagine? Be like, listen, guys, we need a do-over. We need a mulligan. We're just going to, we could keep the first one. It's okay. It will still be like a backup. We're going to move every Yaron who wants to move to Colorado. We're going to make the mountains bloom. We're going to talk to the governor, Governor Jared Polis. Polis, right? Jewish a, governor Jared Polis. Jew. And yep. say like, look, lease us some land in the Rockies. We're going to try for Israel, too. This is amazing. And this this ties in well with Javier Sinai, who, you know, this place in Argentina where his family was from, that was the Jerusalem of South America. Sure. Like, we've, we, like there have been satellite locations. And there have been attempts in and there this been country, attempts too, the, right? To have, the, like, the, up, upstate New York. Well, There's supposed to be a— The attempts were always, like, you know, rural upstate New York. Sitka, Alaska was an idea. Madagascar was an idea. But I think the problem is they never said, how about the most beautiful state in, in America? Well, okay, That's what right. about Colorado. winter? They can do winter. They could. We could. We, we could they, they, ski they, in Israel. We could learn to ski. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I was, we're like stereotyping large swaths of population. I just want to make sure. Like, well, winter sports. That's something that Jews can do. Because, because as as we've already ascertained, Jews do camp. Jews, so we will apparently be just well fine. More on that later in in the in the mailbox uh, where the Jewish camping controversy continues. Before we get to the news of the Jews, can I tell you what the big drama in my life is right now? The Honda Odyssey, the 2004 Honda Odyssey was dying. Now, this is a great deep source of regret for me because in Connecticut, if your car is 20 years old, you get one of those antique car license plates from the states. You know the antique car license plate? No, okay. Hold on, no. for a 20-year-old 20 20-year-old car, car, they give you, you know, there's how a lot of states have special license plates. You can get a veteran's license plate. Huh. In Connecticut, you can get a Save the Sound license plate. In Florida, you can get an Everglades license. You know, you can, and some of them you pay for, some it's just you earn them. Like if you're a veteran, they'll give you a license plate. You know, the normal plate, but it says veterans on mm-hmm. it, right? In Connecticut, one of the plates you can get is an antique car plate, which is for retro cars, for people with restored cars, et cetera. You get it when your car is 20 years old. Now, I assume this law came into effect in 1970, when if you had a 1950... It's like a big deal. That was a bit. That was an antique car. So now there are 2001 Honda Civics driving around... <laughs> with that with antique With the antique car like, license Careful plate. there, buddy. So, <laughs> my antique vehicle. <laughs> and I don't think it gets you anything except the ability to wave at other people with antique except cars. The stainful, except the stainful looks at the Lululemon parking lot. That's right. A lot of street cred. So our Honda Odyssey, which is beyond beat up, is one year away from getting the antique license plate. So I just wanted to ride it into, say, I have an antique car. It seems like that's not going to happen. It's it's on its last legs. And so we said, we have to buy a new car because this is really going to die any day. So we are keeping the Odyssey for the time being, but letting it just sit there in the driveway. We treat cars the same way you treat pets. We're going to get a new one, but yes. this one's just in the basement. Right. This dog's not on, dead on yet. <laughs> so that is the way we treated cats, actually. But no more cats for us. Anyway, long story short, we got the last available used Tesla in the country because there's been a huge spike in demand for electric cars because gas prices have gone so high and also people are trying to go electric. So it's a six-month or a year-long wait for pretty much any of the new electric cars, whether it's the Volkswagen ID or the Tesla or whatever. And so you have to go used, which we'd have to go anyway for price reasons. And they are basically out of used Teslas. We went on Carvana, 
And on the web, I ordered pretty much the last used Tesla available at 2018. It arrives. I've been leading the Tesla lifestyle. I didn't want to tell you guys because I thought it might not work out for us. I just not might, I might not be able to live the EV lifestyle. We've been living it for a month. The kids love it. But what I've discovered is that I thought I was buying a hippie environmental car like nope. the Prius because, right? I, no, I sincere, all of you, you are nodding. A, like, you bought no. a status car. I honestly thought, and by the way, I will tell you, I spent $45,000 on this car. I had 20 to put down. I have car payments for the first time in my life, but that's about what you'd spend on a new Prius. Like, it's not like I spent a $100,000 car. I spent what you have to spend these days to get a new car or even a, a nice used one. It hurt. But that would have been a Prius or a Volkswagen, whatever. I didn't think I was buying a BMW. And now do people, you're like, you're treated. Everybody looks at me differently. The kids' friends are impressed. They're like, oh, can I have a ride in your dad's car? A local man with a lot of Parnassa, a local very wealthy man in my neighborhood who has one of the really, like a guy who owns Mercedes, is, 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 stopped me at a crosswalk. I had my window rolled down and said, well, I guess freelance journalism pays well. Oh. And I was so mortified. I went home. I said to Sid, I said, people think we're richies now. But here's the thing. Fine, whatever. I don't care. But I thought I was buying the latest iteration of hippie status. I thought I was buying into like Park Slope Food Co-op, Prius. I thought I was that cliche. It turns and out you're I'm a not. Different, okay, much better so cliche. It turns out I'm not <laughs> that cliche. cliche. I will tell you that this is a failing on Carvana's part, right? Because they should tell you they what, should, like, what stereotype you're playing into Correct. when right. you buy this car. Being like, they don't. In fact, I'm sorry, but they should have like a feature on the side. Yes. Where, like, where you plug in the yeah. stereotype. I want people to look at me as a Who are your people crunchy now? hippie. Yeah. Wealth off. Yeah. I said, yeah. But meanwhile, there's a super smug guy two blocks away who bought a new Volkswagen ID EV car, which was probably $75,000, but it's a Volkswagen. So, you know, that's still like, right. that's in the food co-op lane. So I'm really, it's, it's honestly, as somebody who tries to be inattentive to these class things and just lead my life, it's really thrown me for a loop. Well, now you you just want to lead your life because you're a rich. Like now, you, I'm just a richie. I'm just a richie now. Mark, I knew something felt different about you today. My hair I, had a certain bounce. This is yeah, right I was like, yeah. He's, this this guy is living now, life. Now the downside I'll just say is now that we've really decommissioned the Odyssey, we're trying to decide where to donate it. We actually don't have a car that all of our children fit in, <laughs> so we have two five seaters and we have a seven person family. So basically, we're just not going to go out to eat until Rebecca and Elizabeth both go to college because we can't. We can't actually take everyone in one car. They're going private now that you're living the Tesla oh, lifestyle. That's right. that's right. Now, like, <laughs> their application process the just the jokes just keep on coming. News of the Jews. N O T J News of the Jews. News of the Jews. Guys, I want to start with the Ketubah of one of three stooges, Mo Howard. It was auctioned off for $21,889. It contains the Aramaic blessing, nyuk, nyuk, nyuk. I, re I read from the Times of Israel, the Jewish marriage certificate of Mo Howard, the leader of the three stooges comedy group, fetched over $20,000 at an auction this week in Los Angeles. Interesting to me for only one reason, that the way Sid and I have led our lives, our ketubah is valued at zero insofar as we don't know where it is. Nor did we have a fancy Ketuba artist to do it. We Well, that was before you had a Tesla. It was, <laughs> I've never, it's never going to end, is it? I've opened, well, you just, I've opened the door, the, the, wing, the, the gull wing doors of the Tesla. What's next? 
What do you see? Where do you see me going next? We're going to find that. going to redo that Kachuba. <laughs> gold, gold so, plated. Well, now you have to have a pool. Now there's just no stopping oh you. Oh, my God. I think that our rabbi, Sharon Cohen Anisfeld, or some knowledgeable sage said, well, you don't need one of those fancy things in Hebrew. And it just has to contain certain language. And, you know, you can type it up. We went on Microsoft Word and we typed it up. We put places for us to sign. We did have the ceremony, the bedakin and all, where we had witnesses. We signed it. We were officially Jewishly married after that. Seven blessings, all that stuff. It's a piece of paper. It's a piece of, you know, nice uh, medium bond photocopy you paper. You had a Microsoft Word. Ketubah. With Microsoft Word. And it is somewhere in the boxes from the 2005 I mean, Could have been, been worse. Could have been like an Apple Pages. <laughs> well, it's good because Clippy was one of your, uh, your witnesses. Oh. The Microsoft Oh, no, Word no. Clip. It was MS Word on a Mac. <laughs> it's Clippy Rob, it's <laughs> Rob Clippy to you. So my question is, do you guys know where your ketubot yeah, are? Yeah, my ketubot is framed and on the floor of our bedroom. Uh, ours is framed and hanging on our wall because we love each other, Mark. Okay, but here's the thing. This article took the bait on this, this genre of PR notice, which is basically like, Jewish person's thing auctioned right. by our auction house, right? right, right and they're right. always, they get more and more and more random. You're like, great, $20,000 for Mo Howard, nay, Moses Horwitz, Horwitz <laughs> which I didn't know. Mark, the problem is you can't find yours. One day we'll want to, like, your my, estate will yeah. be like, noted Jewish podcaster and Jewish journalist, Mark And Tesla owner. And it's, it's like, it's extra special because it's this rare artifact that no one's ever seen, which is a piece of paper with typed with, letters on it. We haven't, which Sid and yeah, I haven't seen it. It's actually probably worth like seven half? times that right. just for the fact that it was a home freaking It's not one of those silly cliche ketubas that was in a frame hanging over a bed. Mine don't have doves painted on them. Leo, we've already heard that Stephanie's is on the floor being trampled by her daughter. Uh, which is probably the best fate for a ketubah, right? Liel, yours is hanging on a wall. Is it hanging over your bed, which I always find a creepy move. I've been in Jewish houses where the ketubah, it's, it's, like, it's, hey, it's as if the ketubah is a witness. Who, guess who lived up to his part of <laughs> yeah, the contract is, this morning. I, you know I honestly what I mean? feel it's people saying, look, my ketubah is witnessing our sexy time. That's right. Is that where your ketubah no. is? Where is it? In the hallway. As you enter the Jewish home, if you will, and one of the first <laughs> things that you see, right after that, you pass the mezuzah, right. and on your right, is the ketubah. Welcome to Base Liel Velisa. Exactly. All right. Well, Lea for you. Lea Veliel. Yes, Stephanie Butnick. Do you have more news of the Jews for us? My favorite news story this week from Reuters. Fewer chickpeas means hummus could be harder to find. It's not a great time to be a hummus fan. Global supplies of chickpeas could dip as much as 20% this oh, year. Could, could dip. Could dip. Oh. <laughs> wow, is Reuters making jokes? Look, is at, this... look at whoever's on the chickpea beat. Weather and war have hurt supplies of the protein-packed bean, driving up food prices and creating headaches for food manufacturers. I don't think that's a pun. I know, um, we're all looking now. Prices are bloated. <laughs> Almost like gas prices are. We're getting creamed by the chickpea shortage. Imagine if the wars, the next war of the Middle East is fought not over water or oil, but about, what about the last remaining supplies? Well, it's ironic because this is partially because of what's going on in Ukraine, which is that that's where a lot of the chickpeas are coming. Like this, okay. this is all. Let's come up. I want some listener to come up with the, the conspiracy theory that links it all from space lasers to Ukraine to gas prices, to the garbanzo beans, all meant to make Israelis irritable because they can't get their hummus, which means there'll be soft targets for terrorist attacks. I feel like it's not even a stretch to come up with a theory. Here. Oh, I thought you were going to say that Jews are like maliciously pulling the strings on all this. Oh, well, you could go that way too. I was thinking maybe it's an anti-Semitic, maybe the anti-Semites are pulling the strings. If we're pulling the strings. I mean, aren't we always? We want to hear from you. Please email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our voicemail line, 914-570-4869. I have a joke that I that I wanted to share. Okay. So, so a Mossad agent walks into a bar 
And he's very adamant that no one figure out he's a Mossad agent. And he sits there and he says, can I have a beer, please? And the bartender just shoots him this look. And the Mossad agent's like, screw this. I, I think he's about to blow my cover. I Maybe. think he knows I'm a Mossad agent. And he's like, uh, is anything uh, is anything the matter? Um, do you, is everything okay with my order? And the bartender says, yes, we're just not used to having dolphins come in here. <laughs> this is a very, very, very niche joke. For like literally uh, the listeners of which, this podcast. Which leads me straight to my news of the Jews. What is your news of the Jews? So I got an email last week. As uh, one does. From, from my friend and top Israeli journalist, Lahav Arkov. And the, the subject line is, they really are the worst country, aren't they? And already my heart sings because I know, of course, that the news item in question is going to be about the worst country in the world and the child rape capital of Earth. Belgium, of course. And here is the deal. I will read now from the Jerusalem Post. This is a story by Lahav. Uh, Belgium advances deal to release Iranian terrorists. So uh, this gentleman, Asadullah Asadi, in 2021 was sentenced for 20 years in prison for trying to bomb an anti-Iranian regime rally in France. And of course, because he's now been in prison for, I don't know what, six months, which is way too much for the compassionate Belgians when it comes to a Jew-hating Iranian terrorist, uh, they're not going to release him because, you know, he's done He's done his time. He only tried to kill mass amounts of people in a bombing terrorist attack in another European capital. Belgium, don't ever change. Keep on being the worst country in the world. The Jew casters need you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our first guest, Mike Pesca, is a radio journalist and the host of the podcast, The Gist, the longest running daily news podcast in history since podcasts started in 1236. Formerly with Slate, he is now producing The Gist with his own production company, Peach Fish Productions. And if you want to know the convoluted and interesting story behind this, you could look up Sean Cooper's piece about Mike Pesca on tablet. We talked to Mike about podcasting, about Jews, and about the Mets, which really are all the same thing. Here's the conversation. Mike, um, we're very, very happy you're here. Uh, and I'm really, really sorry to do this, but I, I want to start us off um, on, a, on a low note. I want to start with a contentious issue. I want to start with something you're known uh, for saying repeatedly, which a lot of people think is highly controversial. 
And so I want to put you right on the spot and ask you, are the Mets going to win the World Series this year? The Mets have the greatest offense in the history of the Mets, which is really good because they're supposed to have great pitching staff. So two of them were hurt. Two of the great pitchers are hurt. I do think that the Dodgers are a better team. But other than that, I'm very much enjoying this Mets, this version of the Mets. And it just goes to show, and I tell this to all my friends, if you have an institution in your life that is not working out for you, what you should do is get it bought by an extremely rich and by all means, rapacious <laughs> uh, a manager of a hedge fund who skirted uh, investigation several times. But he will inject cash and a lot of fun into the business. That is my advice. Good news for Twitter. How close were you to saying Jew right there? You were so close, right? I mean, you're like a rapacious hedge fund managing uh, Long Island urban, dwelling, cosmopolitan, elite. rootless. I mean, you, it's okay. You, I mean, you would have saved so many syllables and so much breath, but just saying mm -hmm. Jew, right? Who's, right. Whose families descend from those who could <laughs> lend money during the Sabbath. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, <there's> just... <laughs> so, you know, I was upset. I think I've been clear on this podcast. I was obsessed with baseball at the age of 12, so 1986. So I know a lot about Robin Yount and, and people like that. That was the, you know, that was the era. Actually, the 86 Mets, I know the whole lineup. Um, and then at a certain point, you know, I had responsibilities and I stopped fanatically following sports. And then I checked back in a year or two ago and discovered that nobody pitches a full game anymore. They're like, like the, the entire rules have changed. And actually that nobody That's watches right. games anymore, that everyone at the field is just on their phone. Nobody notices the seventh inning stretch, that everything sucks. You guys stick with, and what's more, nobody watches it on TV anymore. I mean, it's, it's actually dying. Do you feel like you're on the Titanic? I mean, what, what, what is this here? Why are you still, is it still magical for you? If the Titanic were a habit handed down from father to son for years and years, where Titanic stats could apply retroactively into the past, no, I don't feel like I'm on the Titanic. I feel You're like- You're we've been, as Mets fans, we've been drowning for 20 years now. That's all we know is drowning. Mets are great. So you didn't watch baseball, but it kind of stood still for you. It changed in glacial ways. And that's what baseball does. I mean, the 162 gamedness of it all means you could just miss three or four games, which in the NFL is a quarter of the season or almost a quarter of the season. But with baseball, it's there. I agree. Baseball has really done a couple things. I just gave this talk at the Comedy Cellar about the inefficiencies of efficiency. And one of my examples of uh, supposed efficiency ruining something is baseball, because all the smart guys from Moneyball, who are smart, and I give them credit, they found that the game was being played in an inefficient way. So the, the efficient way to play it is to always try to hit a home run, and if that doesn't work, get a walk. And yeah, it does generate more runs. It also makes for an extremely boring entertainment product. So right now, the Mets are sitting atop the heap of that entertainment product, but it's not good. It's not a good trend for baseball. And trying to squeeze out, trying to do things like eliminate the hit and run and the stolen base and the uh, bunt and all these strategies, those were fun strategies. They weren't maximally efficient in terms of run production, but man, did they take your attention when you're sitting in the stands and there's a guy on first, you could say maybe he'll steal second. And in 1986, my God, did they. Vince Coleman and the So Cardinals they don't try to steal bases anymore? Not really. First? The, problem, the problem is that the people who run baseball actually hate baseball. And I think that's a great metaphor and transition for, for pretty much every institution in American life. Right? It seems like we have a big money ball problem everywhere, right? People are like, well, we need to make sure X is running this way. But then you lose all the soul, don't you? Yeah. I, th I do think people who run baseball actually hate baseball. I do think the people who run America hate America. I have some hope for the cities 
because I see a lot of municipal pride and it takes different forms, but I kind of like living in New York City more than I do living in the United States of America. And I bet almost everyone who chose their city feels that way. You know, Peter Cole, the poet, once said to me, he doesn't think of himself as an Israeli, but a Jerusalemite. And it was a really profound thing to think about, right? Because he's in this country with so many problems and he's politically on the left and he feels like the country's left him in so many ways, but he would never leave and he would never boycott his hometown, right? Like it's it's his city. And I think, I mean, I, I feel like I've gone in some ways from being a, a Springfielder to a New Havener. It, it's like if you, as my podcast co-host will tell you, that is clearly where my loyalties lie. And I, I, I think that's really deep that it's, it's all, I mean, it's all about the cities. And I also, don't you, and don't you think that we give so much more forgiveness to our municipal brethren? Like there are people on the national stage, let's say Ted Cruz, who will say things I don't agree with. And I don't rob him of his humanity or not think of him as a person, but I would never give him a break, right? I would never say, oh, this is why old Ted is saying that. But literally everyone in New York politics, no matter how annoying or off base I think they are, I kind of smile and say, you know what? They're a type they make for the rich tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to you uh, talk and, and I'm, I'm reminded of something that I think about quite often. I, I don't, as listeners of our show know, I, I don't, I listen to very few podcasts. I do listen to yours religiously. And I wonder at, at this thing, the Pesca conundrum or the Pesca conundrum, if you will, which is we kind of tend to think that radio especially is dominated by these people who by necessity sort of gravitate to these extremes, right? Who carve these voices for themselves by saying the most outlandish shit that they can because it makes for good radio entertainment or whatever. And here you are sort of like maddeningly, I'm sorry if I'm using dirty words or insulting you in any way, but maddeningly centrist and sensible in so many ways. And yet at the same time, clearly not sounding like you're, you know, intelligence squared or trying to kind of parse political, you know, policy matters, etc. Can you can you reflect on that? When you listen to other shows, you get the sense of like, hey, guys, you know, you could still be fun and funny without saying like crazy shit. Yeah, I do think that if you're an op-ed writer or someone who does opinion radio or podcasting, the easiest way, there, there are a couple vectors and the easiest vector is up and down. You get more angry or less angry. And that doesn't, it probably, it doesn't compel me anymore. Nuances may be a little bit of a, uh, not the most exciting way to say it, but there are other vectors you could use. You can analyze things through time. You can analyze things that are going on in our society against other societies. There are just so many different ways rather than, I'm going to give you my opinion and what, why my opinion is interesting is it's so much more extreme than your opinion or notably the, our enemy's opinion. Now, in terms of branding, I think VH1 found this when they were just being a music channel that if you don't stand for a certain kind of genre of music, people find it a little bit confusing. And dude, so this is why dude, stop right there. Stop, yeah. stop right there. VH1 stood for <laughs> Billy Ocean. It stood for Billy Ocean and Ario Speedwag. I mean, literally, it was the soundtrack of my life. So you've uh-huh. offended its religious sensibility. I'm now, just that's gonna, it. I'm just going to throw that out there, and you guys can carry on with your snooty condescension to VH1. <laughs> Go ahead, pick uh-huh. up right where you are. Right like a boat without an oar. I can't fight this feeling anymore that you're wrong, Mark. You're wrong. <laughs> that song has the lamest rhymes. And I do love REO Speedwagon, one of the few bands named for a fire truck. Um, anyway, <laughs> whereas Buffalo Springfield was named for a, anyone? A chicken. A tractor. 
Don't, I thought you knew all the Springfield. That I don't trivia. know. I mean, I know what Fountains of Wayne is named for, but that's it. I'll throw you I that know, one as a New all Jersey I know guy. Is Buffalo Springfield is a terrible minor league game. But anyway, as I was saying, you have to have a format. And usually a format is all the way conservative or all the way liberal. In terms of branding, people know when they tune into to take someone execrable, Charlie Kirk, what they're going to get. And they're not going to be challenged or ever say, oh, I didn't expect Charlie Kirk to come at it from that angle. But I would say, you know, the same thing for the majority, you know, Pod Save America doesn't really challenge you. In fact, the dominant form of podcast is just three people agreeing with each other. There's something to be said for that when the people are really interesting, but in general, it's not what is most compelling to me. So I would say in terms of uh, my position in the marketplace, it would probably be more helpful if I was more consistent, but in terms of what interests me and what interests the audience which I already have. I don't know how it works as a selling point to get future audiences. Oh, listen to this guy who you might disagree with with 25% of the time. I personally listen to a lot of podcasts that I agree with, disagree with more than I agree with, but I don't think most people do. So, you know, you're... Uh, you're a guest on a show right now that's hosted by three people who disagree on most things. Um, I will say I was profoundly bored during the part of this conversation where we talked about sports. Um, and I'm not just trying to perpetuate gender norms. That shit was real boring. Um, but the Billy Ocean stuff really grabbed you, right? <laughs> I don't even, Ario Speedwagon, right over my millennial head. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. I'm not that young. Um, you know, your show has been going for a really, really long time. You just launched what you're calling season two, but you know, you're doing it independently now. It's not a part of Slate. How has that changed in the time that you've been doing the show, right? Like a lot of the shows you mentioned, Pod Save America, that's that's relatively new. So like, is there, can you track this change in terms of like, oh, now shows look like X, whereas before I was, you know, part of a landscape where more shows were people where you couldn't necessarily like pin them down what they were going to come out on any given issue. Has that changed societally? It feels like it does a little bit. Okay, so here are a couple of trends and maybe we could weave them together into a thesis. Um, first of all, now, and I always thought it would get this way, conservative shows are just as prevalent in the uh, iTunes charts and in the uh, news feeds because people, listeners are conservative and there's nothing about the technology of podcasting that would guarantee that it would be a more liberal bastion for years and years and years once the top technology, okay, maybe the first movers were NPR because they had expertise in the field. So you're going to get a podcast seeming to be more of a space for liberals, but that is pretty much gone. And so, you know, if you look, I don't know right now as we speak or the listeners hear this, but usually it's something like number one show on iTunes is the daily number two is Ben Shapiro and number three is NPR's up, up first. And that doesn't, that doesn't shock me. What I think is going on is I definitely know that when I worked at NPR, when I worked at the local NPR uh, member station, the idea was we want to be, I mean, obviously it was liberal and most of the people staffing it were liberal, but they would say to themselves, but we do have an obligation to represent either the literal audience or the audience of the United States. And a great thing you could do was to bring on a conservative and a liberal and have a dialogue, or just if the talk show host was mostly trying not to show his or her stripes, talk to conservatives. That as an ideal, that as something that most in your liberal audience will applaud, I think that's gone. I don't, I mean, I know that in the 2010s and the early 2000s, I would work for uh, shows like On the Media, and I would guest host uh, what was then the Leonard Lopez show and Brian Lair on WMYC. And Brian is more of a commitment to this than most others. But it was very much the idea 
that if there were a couple of ways of looking at something, we weren't just we weren't just committed to the binary, but it was always good to think, well, how might a conservative think about this? I don't think that thought occurs to the kind of people making the podcast equivalent of uh, public radio talk shows. It never occurred to the Rush Limbaugh types. They were always an opposition party and they founded themselves as such. But I do think, hey, what can we aspire to? Let's get conservatives and liberals talking to each other. It's gone. I mean, as far as I could see, the only show that consistently commits to this is Left, Right, and Center, which notably is a legacy show from a public radio station that you know goes back to the time when that was actively sought out. And then there's the other thing, just of, you know, well, I would say as more people are able to found more media, there isn't the, it's not a necessity for liberals and conservatives to come together under one media roof. So the Dispatch founds themselves as whatever they are, and uh, all the liberal magazines like the American Prospect found themselves like what they are. The New Republic is now much more liberal. They all have shows, uh, podcasts. And their shows are just going to reflect their worldview. So the institutions making media have less of a commitment to get left and right or centrism represented. And I would point out that left, right, and center is on hiatus. And they are, according to their website, uh, reflecting on what civilized yet provocative means in 2022. (laughs) That's fascinating. I I was just about to ask, do these terms even even mean anything anymore? Because look, your own departure from, from Slate very famously... Uh, revolved around this issue of words and context and nuance and subtlety, not even having any more space in this discourse that is so frequently dominated by these big, you know, steely commitments to to ideologies. Are are, are the terms that we're using to think about this debate? Can you said left, right, and center, conservatives versus liberals or progressives, like? Are those even helpful debates anymore? Do you feel that the whole playing field has sort of been upturned and that there's kind of new coalitions, new polarities, new ideas? Well, yeah, but it probably was always the case. In 1980, if we said, well, what does liberalism mean? There'd be a robust discussion. And some people would probably use the term neoliberal in a way totally opposite from it, the way it's used now, right? Then it meant Bruce Babbitt was a, a neoliberal because he believed in some market solutions and he wasn't um, exactly you know, committed to, say, uh, I I was going to say Gary Hart, but Robert Reich's agenda, right? He'd he'd have policy differences with that guy. So I think that the terms have always changed and they're less what they used to mean. Left, right, and center going on hiatus. So so to go back to um, Slate and my departure, it really was a disagreement about the nature of disagreement. Like I thought that, and I would still say, define liberalism however you want, but if it doesn't include a commitment to robust discussion and something approaching really recognizing the ethic and ethos of free speech, that it's not real liberalism. So I was engaged in a debate with others. The very fact that I was having the debate was so offensive that, you know, it, it could not stand to some of the people at Slate, not necessarily all of management, but it did cause some trouble. And I do, I do that's probably what's going on with Left, Right, and Center. I didn't realize they were on hiatus. Josh Barrow hosted the show. And he's like an int- he's a really interesting thinker who, I don't know if you'd want to slap a label on, on him. He probably just goes wherever his ideological commitments take him. And so we'd call him a centrist or his enemies would probably call him a uh, contrarian. I sometimes get tagged with that label. And it's just like, 
No, just because there's an established ideology and someone outside of us have defined the parameters of that ideology, I think it's really important that we not uh, adhere to it blindly. So, Does that label annoy you, contrarian? Because I get that a lot and yeah. I fucking hate it. It's like, oh yeah, you get to decide I'm contrary to what? To your bullshit? Fuck you. Yes. And, but, uh, but then again, but then again, wouldn't every contrarian say that? What contrarian would say, yeah, I'm a contrarian. That gets me kicked out. I disagree with that. Can I be a contrarian for a moment? I think what what I mean when I call Liel a contrarian is that sometimes, or when I call people, when I, when I spitefully, condescendingly call people a contrarian, <laughs> what I'm saying is you're taking that position purely for the almost erotic rush you get of being the naysayer or in opposition. In other words, it's, it's not that you are dissenting from a particular line of thought and how dare you, there's a party line, wh- why be contrary? It's that whatever the, the whatever you think the conventional wisdom is, you will always throw yourself into the opposite point of view because it's, fu- it's fun to do or you find it vital or robust feeling. I disagree with that, to Mark. Do. I, and by the way, I sense that tendency in myself to the point of view where like, I literally will sometimes go from one social setting in which I'm with my liberals and I'll be picking fights with them, taking some sort of putatively conservative position. And then I find myself with some a conservative friend a few minutes later and I'm taking the liberal position and it'll be on the exact same thing. And I realize it's that I just have a deep misanthropic streak that whoever I'm with, I want to tell them- You want to alienate them. Yeah, exactly. I want to alienate. It's, the, it's exactly the high school debater in me just coming out, like straight out of 1990, there he is again. And I think that's what it is when people say contrarian. I mean, you are a chatty intellectual Jew. You are schooled in the rabbinical (laughs) studies of debating every aspect of the Talmud. How could you not do that? So yeah, probably that's what contrarianism means. You get that, you're so um, compelled by the frisson of excitement, of disagreement, that maybe you are only engaged in the disagreement for something like uh, the sake of the show, or the sake of your own, and by the show, I don't mean uh, unorthodox podcast. (laughs) I mean the show of life. Yeah, Uh, but I think when people call other people contrarian, they're maybe more ideologically rigid and they won't give uh, credit or credence to the idea that this is an honest disagreement. I also think, and I can't even see, I don't see the other point. I very much think that actively disagreeing with someone, engaging in the Socratic method, uh, stress testing their ideas is an excellent way to deepen knowledge, understanding, and even the other side of the argument. It's overall just a really worthwhile effort to engage in. And I think maybe people under 40 totally disagree with me (laughs) that all we're doing is perpetuating harm. I think it's a generational thing. I think most people not, not necessarily my age, but that 40 is now 10 years under my age. There is a generation where that is seen to have great benefits and that stopped being seen in general as a good thing for society. And it more began to be seen as a perpetuation of harm or this idea of platforming, which I would say 90 something percent of the time is just a Trojan horse for shut up. I don't want to hear that opinion. Well, speaking of opinions, we do want to hear you popularized, at least in my opinion, a really important term, um, the pizza bagel. (laughs) Could you tell us what that is and and why you identify thusly? Well, uh, as the name Pesca might imply, I am Italian on my father's side. Pesca meaning peach in Italian. It actually means something like two fish in Spanish. My production company is called 
peach fish productions, but I am a Italian pesca and the Jewish side of my family are the catzers. So I guess I could have been a catfish or something. But <laughs> the pizza bagel is the embodiment of the Jewish food and the Italian, layered on top of, or uh, I guess the Italian is layered on top of the Jewish. That is probably that is probably reflective of my experience, that the Italian is layered on top of the foundation of uh, the chewy bagel, the pizza bagel, the Massapequa pizza bagel. And both of them came to their kind of excellence, their peak form, their platonic ideal in the United States, right? It took immigration and, uh, you know, small business people in America to figure out how to do it right. So I think it's also, I'm, I'm just, you know, this is my midrash on it here, right? I think it's also about the American immigrant experience, if I may deepen your otherwise ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, untouched, untouched by corporatism. I mean, the greatest pizza and the greatest bagels, I guess the ba- you guys might precisely. be smaller of the smaller, chewier camp. But, you know, a place like H&H has a couple, a half dozen outlets, just not hundreds throughout the country. And what's the deal with the Einstein bagels? Like the only Jew they could think of? Einstein. That's right. They basically <laughs> said, they, the branding people came up with, what's the Jewish name? All right, is? look, we, we keep saying bagels Bagels are no longer Jewish. They've gra- We've given them to, to the rest of the world. Is there something particularly Jewish about what you do? Because I mean, look, so much of what we do is rooted in our understanding of these, again, Jewish Talmudic sensibilities of arguing for the sake of heaven, as we say, because the argument itself clarifies everything. You seem to be very much of of this rabbinic <laughs> mindset too, of like, hey, wait a minute, you know? No, I'm, I'm not here to grandstand or, you know, have fun or, you know, do any of these things, although they might be side effects. I'm here to actually get to the bottom of stuff. Yes. I do think it is, although every bit of it probably has an analog on the Italian or Catholic side. So my dad is, uh, he is, he's the one who first bought me a subscription to the National Review and the New Republic and said, let them fight it out for your brain space. But this is when <laughs> Kinsley edited, Kinsley edited one and Buckley edited the other. Oh, wow. And he was very much of a, you know, Vatican II, um, Leo Biscaglia, <laughs> kind of a, a touchy-feely Catholic who also very much enjoyed investigating, you know, the great questions of the day. So yeah, it could, I think it can all be found there. Next time you're on the show, I want to talk about sort of 70s, vaguely new age, uh, humanistic <laughs> psychology. I want to talk Leo Biscaglia. Right. I want to talk M. Scott Peck, The Road Not Taken. I want to talk Passages by Gail Sheehy. I want to talk about how mega bestsellers when you and I were young could be about just like, how do you feel at this moment in time? I think Jonathan Livingston Siegel somehow yeah, totally. belongs on that list. Oh, totally. Yes. The embodiment of a bird. We're going to do a book club that's just about Fruit Loopitarian 70s New Agey bestsellers. Now, is um, Est in that list? Well, Est is a darker than that, man. I mean, I Est, you know. Est not, 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 not to interrupt this uh, this this charming conversation. Uh, let me rephrase <laughs> it. Not to interrupt this charming midlife crisis you're having here. But um, does this kind of inquisitive, uh, let him fight it out for your brain, applied also for religious ideas? Were you sitting there being like, well, you know, this Vatican II is the church. There's the Jews. And I'm kind of going to, you know, what what I'm asking is, uh, what is your relationship with God like? <laughs> uh, benign but distanced. So <laughs> when I was growing up, my dad went to Catholic high school and St. John's University. And 
very much was a Catholic. He's actually, other than joining the priesthood, which he considered, he's had more sacraments than a person should because he had a horrible uh, car accident and they read the last rites over him. Now, most living people don't get to walk around saying, I have the last rites, which is a sacrament. But yes, yeah, so he's, he's a real committed Catholic. And my mom was a real meh kind of Jew, like not even High Holy Days Temple. We did not belong to a temple. And when I was growing up, my friends would not include me in the list of uh, their Jewish friends because I wasn't there in Hebrew school with them. And I'd say, oh, my mom is Jewish, but it didn't really count. Since then, my whole family, every woman I've ever married has been a Jew. And uh, my kids are Jewish. And <laughs> all of your wives of have been, you're saying all of your wives have been Jews? <laughs> Both of my wives. Yes, and uh, that's that's a that's a great Kinky Friedman song. <laughs> All of my wives have been Jews, <laughs> but I have two children who are bar mitzvahed, and I think they embody just two great traditions of Judaism. Because one is a good, a good Jewish lad who pretty much is a I don't know if he literally believes in God, but he certainly thinks there was something there, and Moses is a okay with him. And the other one said. You know, when I get to become a man, that means I get to make my own decisions. And we said, yes. He says, therefore, I shall decide to become an atheist. <laughs> That's like the most Jewish sentence ever. Exactly right. The yeah, most Jewish teenage sentence ever. He's about <laughs> nine years away from rabbinical school. Just saying, you know, start prepping now. <laughs> when, he when you don't know where he is, he's on a kibbutz. That's, he's he in just a Chabad house down, down the road. He forgot. Forgot to leave you a note. That's where he is. Uh, well, Pasca, before we take our leave of you, um, what are you listening to these days? Like, I'm always curious because, you know, we actually don't listen to many podcasts and uh, yeah. we listen to yours. What do you listen to or read or watch or? Let me pull up the actual, the actual list right here. So I, Decoding the Gurus is a new one I've been getting into. Um, I love, uh, I love Blocked and Reported with Jesse and Katie. I don't know if Jesse Single, notable skinny Jew, has ever been on the show. As, as, quote unquote, basic as it is. I think Bill Simmons does a great job when it comes to sports. The greatest talk show with guests and phone calls is the Colin McEnroe show. That is awesome. He has been a Gentile of the Week thrice, actually. It's, you guys in New Haven, you have, it's quite a, it's quite a rich- We'll take you out for pizza. I'd love to, no clams though. Uh, I, I check in, the two conservative uh, podcasts that I routinely listen to are Commentary Magazine, and the editor's roundtable. And I do think Charlie Cook is, I do a spiel at the end of my show where I talk for, you know, seven, eight, nine minutes on something. And sometimes off the cuff with some of his answers, he will achieve spieldom. I do wonder if it's because he has an English accent and I'm giving him way too much credit. I listen to The Bulwark a lot, Yasha Monk. In Lua Fun is a great podcast slash YouTube channel that my friend Ben Wittes and Kate Klonick host. I think the podcast that's closest to my sensibilities is Larry Wilmore because he starts with a little comedy item. It's much more off the top of his head. And then he goes and has a deeper discussion on it. Could be anything. Could be comedy. Could be whatever is, uh, is captivating him. Larry, if, you don't, if you've not listened to Larry Wilmore, I would say dive in. He does a fantastic job. Uh, I'll, I'll keep going, but I'll end quickly. Philosophize This is a great podcast. Um, he just goes through all the great philosophers of the time. He's uh, a layman, not a professor. Got interested in philosophy. Plain English with Thompson. That guy's doing a great job. And my friend Virginia Heffernan has a podcast called This is Serious. And of the Scott Galloway, Cara Fisher world, I like his podcast very much. 
Professor G. Oh, there's probably so many that I haven't listened to. Uh, and just for fun, I'll listen to Too Beautiful to Live. Luke Burbank has been doing that podcast longer than I have. Uh, yeah, those are just some of them. That was like well, a very casual list of recommendations. Well, we, we <laughs> listen to you. So thank you so much for being our guest. You're welcome, guys. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. To the mailbox. Stephanie, you want to read our first letter? Yes. Hey, Unorthodox, your favorite Hashem rock, Irish <laughs> Jew here. That is an amazing one. Um, I'm listening to last week's episode about a week late. I need to lend my voice to this conversation to let Mark's wife know she's not alone. As a child, I asked my mom if I could join the Girl Scouts. Her immediate response? Jews don't do Girl Scouts. Anytime I suggested something outdoors, Jews don't camp. She's a born and raised Northeast Philly Jew. From then on, I've been firmly in the Jews don't camp camp. My best friend and I went on an easy hike in upstate New York, and halfway through, we looked at each other and said, why are we doing this? We hate hiking. We're Jews. On the other hand, one of my oldest friends from Jewish preschool, Hebrew school, etc., got married last summer. Where did the bridal party stay during the wedding weekend? A friggin' campground. My worst nightmare. Why do we stay there? Her husband's Israeli family owns multiple campgrounds in New Jersey. Uh. <laughs> so I guess some Jews do camp. The prevalence well, they don't camp. Jew- they own the campsites. <laughs> it's different. The prevalence of Jewish summer camps also throws a wrench into my Jews don't camp theory. All this to say, I support Team Sid, but I'm willing to be flexible in my stereotypes. Best, Madison. An incredible letter. Madison, first of all, the fun of stereotyping is being totally inflexible about them. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it is ethically, Don't compromise. It is ethically sound of you. Fine, you're a good person. You're you're acknowledging nuance. Um, guys, this takes me into territory I've always been afraid to go into, which is that while my wife says Jews don't camp, my grandfather was the one, my, my mother's father, beloved Grandpa Walter, was the one who passionately believed Jews don't do Boy Scouts. 
and, and here Madison saying her mother, this was her mother's cardinal rule was choose don't do Girl Scouts. I've never wanted to wade into this, even for the benefit of humor, because I know that there are a lot of Jewish Boy Scout troops. We actually have talked for ages about doing a Jewish scouting episode. I also know that like scouting is cool and scouting's great. And a lot of people have benefited from scouting. Nevertheless, in honor of my late grandpa, Walter, I think a lot of Jews felt that scouting was a little bit martial, was putting kids in uniform in a way that looked really jackbooted. And it it really scared him. It, he really thought like, why are there these little armies around like of kids in formation yeah, in the woods? Growing up in Israel, I mean, knives. that is 100% why we went. I mean, that was the selling point. Like, this is pre-army for fourth graders. Like, right. literally, that's how it was being. I don't think Boy Scouting— We loved it. I don't think Anglo—I don't think Anglo-American Boy Scouting, which I think came out of England and moved to it America, did. was framed that way. Like, this is the defense against the Gentiles who would kill us. I think it was no. about virility and manhood or whatever. Correct. I think it was a muscular Christianity thing, and, actually. And colonialism and British Lord Baden-Baden. Anyway, I just am curious— I would love mail from the Jews out there. If any of the rest you have in your family ancestry, the idea that it's just a little bit creepy that the Gentile boys were all in uniforms marching in the woods. In Israel, it's like, why wait until you're 18? <laughs> you could have uniform as early as eight. Guys, an amazing voicemail came in this week from Jordan, taking up the question of whether or not Jews camp or fish or something else. Let's listen. Hey, yeah, my name is um, Jordan. I am a proud... Jew from Maryland. However, I've been serving in the Army for eight years, and I currently um, am stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky. But I heard the comment about fishing, and I would like to vehemently disagree with that. I learned how to fish from my grandfather in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and my cousins that live in the Orthodox community in Norfolk, Virginia. But I say all that to say the one thing that I haven't met any Jews who've done is hunt. So since I've been in the Army, I've learned a lot about that, and I've uh, worked with a lot of service members who do hunt, and that was one activity. That and tattoos were kind of the two things that, for me, were a bit of a shock coming from Pikesville, Maryland, and then seeing that was very common among the non-Jewish service members that I've had the pleasure of serving with. Thank you, and I really appreciate you guys' work. Jordan, I think you called in thinking that Liel would be the one to to rant about how Jews hunt. But actually, I want to say that um, my Papa Jimmy, the six times married grandfather on my father's side, was a hunter, was a, a genuine, honest to goodness, Alabama Jewish hunter. I don't think he was very good. And I don't think he did it much. His two sons, my dad's half brothers, are both avid hunters. But, you know, there's, there's hunting out there. Well, yeah. I've now that I keep kosher have issues with it since I can't obviously perform you're not allowed to shoot it. You have to perform the shechita in this particular manner, which means that you kind of have to sneak up on the deer with a knife, which is insane. But I have been hunting. I can't say that I enjoyed it necessarily, but I do think it's a really important experience for anyone who eats meat to have to skip To look deer. it in the eye, the Michael Pollan nonsense. No, no, to, if you stare it in the eye, it's okay to murder not, it. Not just, not just to look it in the eye. The dumbest to argument actually, ever made. To actually, you know, feel dress and then skin and bleed and oh, dissect yeah. the animal. You want to do it? Do it. This is the price of entry. You want to eat meat? No problem. Understand or where meat comes from. just don't kill animals. So simple. Or, just or, don't murder so them. 100%. I want to know. Or don't do that. So then let's, here's what we need to hear from, like the Jewish hunting enthusiasts, right? Like let's yes. get all of these sub- The sub junters. <laughs> The junters. junters. There's there's a, a, a mashup word for you. The junters. Wait, Liel, I, it never occurred to me, though, when you went kosher, you stopped hunting? I was never a you big can't hunter. Eat it? I, I probably hunted, I don't know, five, six times in my life. 
because it got I feel like that's really, more than food. <laughs> it got really I feel like it's gross. either like none or Look, even field dressing is disgusting. Right. Let's be honest. So let me ask you, have you thought of is. getting into shkita? Have you thought of becoming a kosher slaughterer? I, I think about that a lot. But yeah. honestly, the older I get, and I, I love meat, I'm getting closer and closer to you. I just I just think we should eat much less meat. And if we can, not at all. On it's that just note, better that way. I mean, amen, Salah. On that note, I want to take you to the weirdest letter I think we've ever gotten. <laughs> I love it. I, I say weird as a compliment. We, As podcasters with a mailbox, we do what we do for such a time as this. Dear Unorthodox, I am a Gyor student, a student for conversion, someone studying for conversion, originally from the United States, but now living in England for university. I've come upon a dilemma recently where a pastor I used to know has started using a very questionable catchphrase for their church. I think you'll get a kick out of it. The phrase is, Shalom yellow. Unbelievable. That's shalom with the color yellow. Shalom yellow. Now, when I first read that, I thought, wow, that sounds so dumb. Why combine those two in the first place? It just doesn't make sense as a phrase, especially when this church uses it for literally everything. Happy Easter. Shalom yellow. <laughs> Having nice weather this weekend. Shalom yellow. Just saw the new Minions movie. Shalom yellow. <laughs> Etc. Honest to God, J. Crew, I am not making this letter up. It came to the email inbox of unorthodox at tabletbag.com. Shalom okay. yellow is, by the way, how the Minions movie is translated in Hebrew. <laughs> Shalom yellow, the movie. Back to the letter. Then I realized that this pastor was actually encouraging people in the church to wear yellow items of clothing to church. In my opinion, I don't think it's very appropriate or necessary for a group of Christians to utilize shalom in their day-to-day -day lives. But that by itself might not be too bad if the addition of yellow wasn't there as well. I mean, it might be a stretch, but I feel like the history of identifying a group of people by yellow articles of clothing isn't exactly a pleasant one that you would want to carry on. I have to add, I'm sure this is just ignorance on their part, and it's something that can be handled privately. But first, I'm curious of your guys' opinions. Is this actually offensive or just an odd oh choice? Oh, my Lord, this is Yours, so good. Natalie. Natalie. Uh, shalom yellow, Natalie. Shalom yellow. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to start yellow. saying that. That's this my new catchphrase. This is so weird. <laughs> shalom yellow, Stephanie. Shalom yellow. <laughs> so it's their catchphrase on all of their branding now, and they're all wearing yellow to church. It takes a lot to leave the three of us speechless. I feel like the room is speechless. So yeah. I did some Googling and all it got me to was churchbanners.com. And this is a banner. It's it's banner that says Shalom and is yellow. So it doesn't actually solve the problem. But the banner does say Jehovah Shalom and it's yellow. So maybe there's like a Jehovah, like maybe I don't understand. I mean, this is this is just a, a banner that's yellow. Does yellow have any resonance the way, you know, orange does in Ireland? Is there, is there a kind of... This is I mean, British. crazy. I don't think so. Shalom yellow. I mean, the funny thing is the minions mentioned because don't the minions speak Yiddish? Didn't we like write no. articles? Yes. Isn't there a whole <laughs> thing about the minions are Jewish? Yes, that is incorrect. And they are yellow? Minions Yiddish. Hold on, I'm Googling it. Look, you have to ask this? My late grandma was John. Oh, it's a, min how, oh, it's how a minions you? hoax. Oh, that will yes. go away. No, Look. minions weren't inspired by Jewish children. No, they speak uh, gibberish. No, no, they speak French, Italian, and Spanish. Oh. It's a Look. Oh, but this is very funny because Googling it gets you a lot of people who are like, what is a Jewish minion? But they're just spelling minion. Right. M-I-N-Y-A. I honestly, so to answer your question, Natalie, I don't think we have the foggiest idea. We have no idea why this pastor would say Shalom Yellow. I want to beg you, to implore you to write back to us. We won't bring your name into this. Just tell us what church this is, who the pastor is. Yeah, we need this gentleman well, on the show. There's nothing we want more than to get Pastor Thorndike McGibbons McShalom right. On our show to ask him about his campaign for Shalom Yellow. 
It's like, well, you know, it all started when my bubby, <laughs> Brochaleia, used to say to us every Shabbos, Shalom, yellow. I will say that I am I am not into the Christian appropriation of shalom. I, I think I'm not into it when Messianic Jews do it. I'm Yeah, I don't like it. Although when you add the yellow bit, it's such a great <laughs> twist. Like, you could have it. I mean, frankly, it sounds like a soft drink. Right. Isn't it mellow shalom, yellow yeah, as sold on the, like, on the Moshav? Mellow yellow, but like shalom yellow is an unmellow yellow. Totally, it's totally like Jewish, right? Totally it's like very, you know, it's neurotic, it's, neurotic, it's tense. And, yeah. uh, Although it's, in Israel, yellow is the, the, the gas uh, station chain. That everyone goes oh, bringing gas into this only makes this worse. I know. I want the outro music on that to be. They call me, they call me mellow, shalom yellow. They call me mellow. Boom boom. They call me mellow yellow. Quite frightfully. They call me mellow yellow. Javier Sinai is a writer and journalist who talked with Stephanie about his new book, The Murders of Moises Vie, The Rise and Fall of the Jerusalem of South America. What more needs to be said about this book than that it's about a place actually called, in Spanish, Moses Town? Here's the interview. Welcome, Javier. Thank you. So tell us about this new book of yours. Well, it's a book about some murders that were committed by the end of the 19th century in the fields of Argentina. And the victims were Jewish immigrants from Russia. And they were like in the middle of nowhere, roughly 400 miles from Buenos Aires City. Still is far away. And imagine in 1889. Hard to get to. It's super hard. (laughs) First time I went, I took a train. It was 14 hours. Wow. (laughs) And so this started as a personal story for you, right? Yeah, that's it. Because my great-grandfather, who was a journalist, he wrote an article about these murders in 1947 when he was an old man. He was in the town, in the colony of Moisesville, when some of these murders happened. And he was 20 years old. So... 50 years later, he wrote about that, and I came across, and that surprised me a lot. So I started going deeper and deeper and deeper. So this is this Jewish immigrant settlement in, as you say, sort of like almost 400 miles from Buenos Aires. How did Jews get there, and why was it called the Jerusalem of South America? They wanted to get out of their shtetls in Kamenets-Podolsk, which is today Ukraine, and they wanted to go to Israel, but they couldn't have the the money. They went to Paris to try to find some money. They were like a group of 800 people, so they sent two or three to go and do negotiations. There was a representative of the Argentine government that told them about going to Argentina, which was quite an empty place. So Argentina was bringing people mostly from Europe, from everywhere in Europe. When the Jews get to Argentina, what sort of world do they find themselves in? And what world do they build? They had the hope to work the land as the ancestors. So it was quite naive (laughs) because most of them didn't know how to work the land. (laughs) So there were a lot of problems with the harvest. So there is a say 
I don't know exactly how to say it in English, but it's something like we put seeds and we get doctors. <laughs> because the, the sons and daughters went away to the big cities, to the university. So mostly there was one or two generations of Jewish colonists, and then they spread all around the country. And I haven't answered you about why Jerusalem of South yes, America. Yes, why is it Jerusalem well, of South you America? Know, because at the beginning it was really savage and violent for those migrants to be there, but eventually they were able to build something. And by the 1920s, there was a lot of people and there were four synagogues, one big theater, two libraries. So people started talking about the Jerusalem of South America, maybe in a funny way, but not maybe not so funny. And so then there are these these unsolved murders. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit? I mean, you're a, a crime reporter. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened there and how your own investigative background helped you uncover? That's an interesting thing. There was a change of economic system in the fields, in the provinces. So the gaucho, who was like rural nomad worker, was being mandatory put you know, under discipline, under one kind of chief in one farm. He was not allowed anymore to move and to work whenever he want and whenever not, but to have a everyday work. Some gauchos accepted this discipline and this capitalist new way of life, and the gauchos who didn't became outlaws and bandits. So they frequently came into the colonies and rob and kill. So there were 22 murders in the Jewish colony of Moisesville between 1889 and, and 1906. But this was super normal in, in every colony, not only Jewish, but every European colony. The gaucho bandits who killed people were certainly not victims, but the gauchos as a character was quite a victim of, of that change of system. And so what did you uncover when you sort of went chasing down your, you know, your family's journalistic legacy, right? Telling mm -hmm. these stories. Well, most of all, I found some names of the killers. There was a big mystery surrounding who killed these people because there were no archives. But I could, I was able to find some two or three in 22, which is no, not much, but it's something. But most important, I found a lot about my family because I didn't know nothing about my family. And this is something very Jewish to do research about the ancestors. And the answer to that is who you are. You understand much more about you. There's a, a concept in Yiddish that, that is the golden gate, that means the golden chain. So it's about the chain of generations and it's we are part of something bigger. Javier Sinai, thank you so much for, for telling us about your book and for being on Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I do, too. Daniela Peek and Quentin Tarantino, who welcomed their second child. In Israel, right? Yeah, muscle tov to you and hope to run into you at Hakusim Falafel in Tel Aviv next. And week. only 18 years till this badass Jew joins the Israeli army. Till so he's the, the real life bear Jew. My muscle tov this week is to Herbert and Ali Rosen 
from my shul who have a new baby daughter, Rosie Rosen. Epic. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have a big mazel tov to my pal, Isabel Kaplan, who has an amazing novel that just came out this week. It's called NSFW. It's it's Jewish. It's Hollywood. It's, it's NSFW. Me too. It's, it's a lot. It's really, really good. And I'm so happy for her. And we can't end without saying one final shalom yellow, one final eternal farewell to James Shlomo Chaim Ben Sion Khan, who left us this week, the real heir to the Corleone throne. Talk about badass Jews. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. And the team also includes Sarah fredman Ader, Daron Ruskate, Ellie Blyer, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twittergram book, and you can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Episode art is always by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. You can write to us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079991001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Enid Ladurl at Beth Israel, the West Temple in Cleveland, Ohio. And we come to you from the eighth floor studios of Tablet Studios. Shalom yellow, friends. I think what you want is a Jews in uniform episode. Oh, yeah. You want scouting. You I want military. Yes, you want firefighters. <laughs> the Maytag repair man. calendar. Jewish masons wearing their funny Jewish little fezzes. Jewish Freemasons. <laughs>